seated. Hey, let's pray uh, while you're being seated. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you uh, for Jesus. We thank you for his grace. Uh, may it invade uh, every area of our life. And certainly, uh, we've been proclaiming it this morning through song. May we now receive it uh, through the preaching of your word. Uh, and may it not just be for us. May it be for the people in our life as well. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. I want to start out by asking you, in in your kind of opinion, what is it that makes a great story? Uh, I have a four-year-old daughter, and Lila would tell you that uh, any great story is going to involve a princess, a unicorn dressed head to toe in pink, uh, and every great story needs to have at least one of those elements. You know, pink, unicorn, princess, preferably all three, all right? Um, My son uh, Sam will tell you that any great story involves a video game character like Mario or Luigi or Pokemon, or right now he's really into Star Wars, so kind of anything involving Star Wars, that is a great story. What say you? What makes a great story? Uh, I feel like this story of Jacob that we've been uh, studying the last uh, 10 weeks or so, it has all of the elements of a great story, doesn't it? There's a betrayal a love triangle, a romance, a murder threat, intrigue. There's anger, there's hope. The story has it all, and we've seen it happen. What we're going to see now is that the story from where we started to today, the story's going to come full circle. Uh, Jacob, that, that is kind of the main character of our story, he has become separated from his brother. Uh, he stole, uh, essentially stole from him and uh, mistreated him, and so he was forced to run because Esau wanted to kill Jacob. Jacob is forced to run to his uncle Laban's house, and he's been there for 20 years. So in the ten, we've been preaching for 10 weeks. This story's encompassed 20 years, and uh, they've been separated from each other for 20 years, and now Jacob has returned to kind of his land of origin, and he's going to meet up uh, with his brother Esau. And like I said, last time we saw Esau, we haven't kind of heard a word out of him, The last time we saw Esau, he was ready to kill his brother, uh, and he was ready to end his life. And the question of the text today is, can grace invade even a situation this hostile? So I want to read Genesis 33. It's a little bit of a lengthy uh, story, but it does read like a story. So I want to read it and sign the screen for you. Uh, This is right after Jacob wrestles with God that we studied last week. Jacob looked up, and there was Esau coming with his 400 men. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two female servants. He put the female servants and their children in front. Classy move. Um, (laughs) Leah and her children next, right? Jacob's, he's a charmer, all right? So, uh, and Rachel and Joseph uh, in, in the rear. He himself went on ahead and bowed down to the ground seven times as he approached his brother. Now he's getting it. But Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him threw his arms around his neck and kissed him. And they wept. Then Esau looked up and saw the women and the children. Who are these with you? He asked. It's been 20 years. Jacob answered, they are the children God has graciously given your servant. Then the female servants and their children approached and bowed down. Next, Leah and her children came and bowed down. Last of all, Joseph and Rachel, and they bowed down too. And Esau asked, what is the meaning of all these flocks and herds I met? To find favor in your eyes, my Lord, he said. But Esau said, I already have plenty, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. I mean, look at the shift here, right? No, please, said Jacob. If I have found favor in your eyes, accept this gift from me, for to see your face is like seeing the face of God. 
Now that you have received me favorably, please accept uh, the present that was brought to you. For God has been gracious to me, and have, I have all that I need. And because Jacob insisted, Esau accepted it. Then Esau said, let's be on our way, I'll accompany you. But Jacob said, my Lord knows that the children are tender and that I must care for the ewes and cows that are nursing their young. If they are driven hard just one day, all the animals will die. So let my Lord go on ahead of his servant while I move along slowly at a pace uh, of the flocks and herds before me and the pace of the children until I come to to my Lord and seer. You know, blames it on the kids, right? I can't travel that far. I know where he's coming from, by the way. <laughs> can't travel more than eight hours. I'll lose my sanity, right? All right. Esau said, then leave me uh, some of my men with you. But why do that, Jacob asked? Just let me find favor in the eyes of my Lord. So that day Esau started uh, on his way back to Seir. Jacob, however, went to Succoth where he built a place for himself and made shelters for his livestock. That's why the place is called Succoth. And after David uh, came from Padan Aram, he arrived safely at the city of Shechem in Canaan and camped within the site of the city. For 400 pieces of silver, he bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, the plot of the ground where he pitched his tent. And there he set up an altar and called it El Eloi Israel. That's Genesis 33. Now, in Genesis 34, heads up, you're not going to want to miss next week. <laughs> Woo, my goodness, right? The, it, takes, it, it takes a soap opera twist. Next, and it's kind of like, I can't even believe this is in the Bible, to be honest with you. It's a really weird story that happens next, and it's as he arrives in this land. So as I think about where we are kind of in our culture, in terms of being separated from one another, I think that you could probably point to several kind of attitudes or reasons for why we are becoming increasingly just separated from one another over the last several years. I think that you could say, man, there's an arrogance in our culture right now that I am confident that I am absolutely right and you are absolutely wrong. I'm smart, you're not, that whole sort of thing that you see on social media all the time, that I have the correct opinion, if it needed to change, I would have changed it by now, all right? That sort of thing that you see, that, that you see everywhere, it, you know, I, I hope that doesn't come off of us as followers of Jesus, but in our culture right now, that, that's what exists. There is an arrogance. There's a low level of anger. I think you could point to that as well, that right now just hangs under the culture all the time. So like a two becomes like a 10, very, very easily. And, and you may see some of these blow-ups with your family and friends, and you're like, man, no offense to anybody involved, but this is like a two. And it's all of a sudden become a 10, and people aren't talking, and they've gone in their own directions. I think you could point to that. I think you could point uh, to a lack of empathy in our culture right now that I can't even really even see your point of view. I can't understand it. I, I, can't, I can't grasp it because of my anger and my arrogance. Those could be the reasons for it. Uh, but it makes me difficult to feel for you, to pray for you, to connect with you because of a core lack of empathy in our culture right now. And I feel like we could probably go around this room and we could probably like do this all morning, couldn't we? Of what are the attitudes that are present in our culture right now that are making us like so angry and so divided and so separate from one another. Politically, we've, we've seen it. And with the pandemic response, we've seen it. We, in every area, we've seen this kind of separation. And we could kind of critique our culture all day long. What I want to do is in this story, where we see 
two guys come together that were separated in one of the worst ways possible. I mean, I've had some conflict before, but I've never had anyone say, hey, I plan to take your life over. I've never had that happen. You know, not that you know of, right? Anyway, so, um, but that's what happened in this story is there's a separation and a murder threat. And so we've seen these guys come back together. And I want to talk about the attitudes and the heart that is present that allowed this to happen, that allowed them to come back together and see if we can learn from it. So what I want you to see in Jacob, first of all, in Jacob, we see a humility that he sees his brother coming he gets ahead of his family that he's, kids first, right? Um, you guys go ahead and just kind of test the waters for good old dad, right? Um, so he gets ahead of the family and uh, he goes down uh, to, to Esau and he bows seven times. Now you have to understand, this would have been physically difficult for him to do given the wrestling match he had the day before. You remember what happened in that wrestling match with God? God took the hip out of its socket, so you can imagine having a hip out of the socket to get down onto the ground. I have my hips in socket. I'm like, there's no way I'm getting down there. I'm 46 year old. I'm not doing that, right? So to have the hip, uh, the hip out of the socket, um, it would have been very hard physically for him to have humbled himself in, in this way. But I want you to think about how difficult it is to humble yourself, even beyond the, the physicality of it, emotionally and spiritually. For whatever reason, it is hard for us to humble ourselves and admit that we were wrong. <laughs> I think that it's tied to a sense of righteousness that God has placed in us, that we are made in God's image. We're all made in God's image. And part of that is he has placed inside of us a desire for righteousness and a desire for rightness. This is why when you see war-torn Ukraine or a child being abused or a coworker that does something they shouldn't have done, this is why when you see that, there is this righteous indignation that wells up inside of you, that that's not right. That's not righteous. That's not good. God has placed that inside of you. Unfortunately, sin has touched every element of creation. And what righteousness becomes a, 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 a rightness becomes because of sin is a prideful insistence that I'm right. And I've shared with you, this with you before, but I think this is what a lot of our, our culture's anger is about. It's what a lot of cancer culture is about. It is we are desperate to prove that we are right and they are wrong. We are good. They are bad. We are smart. They're less than, right? That we're desperate to see ourselves as right and righteous, and we forget the scripture, if I can share it with you just for a minute. Here's what the scripture teaches in the New Testament. There is no one righteous. Like, no one? No, not one. In other words, everyone's wrong at some point. So can I go from preaching to meddling just for a minute? All right? When is the last time you admitted you were wrong? Some of you, it was perhaps like the Carter administration or the Reagan administration. It's been a real long time, right? I think it was in the 80s. Now, when, when, is, when is the last time you admitted you were wrong? When is the last time, like Jacob, you humbled yourself before a person that you wronged? When is the last time you said, I feel like this is why I say to my kids all the, all the time, when is the last time you said you were sorry? I'll never forget, Sam had gotten in trouble for something, and I had kind of lost my cool with him. And uh, so he was in his bedroom and I was kind of cool out. And I went up to his bedroom and I said, listen, bud, dad's really sorry. He kind of lost his temper. He raised his voice. I didn't intend to do that. I'm really, really sorry. And he just kind of sat there. So I was like, is there anything you'd like to say right now? 
while I'm here, you have an opportunity. Is there anything you wish to say? Nope, I'm good, Dad. I didn't think there was anything you want to say. All right, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna leave. And then you kind of, you know, have to make them sorry so they'll say there's. It's a whole dance. But all right, so Jacob approaches and he bows seven times. And I don't, I don't think this is an accident. Let me show you this quote from a commentary I studied. It said, "To magnify the honor of being given." Uh, To magnify the honor of being given and the subservience of the person who bowed, this gesture could be repeated seven times. Some Egyptian texts from El Amara portray vassals bowing seven times to a pharaoh, right? So to bow seven times, it is demonstrating your subservience to a person, And it could be there's a positional disparity. We don't do this in our culture, but it could be that you're going in to like meet the Pharaoh or the president or the ruler. And it's like, man, I am subservient to you seven times. And you would bow seven times. Or it could be a relational disparity. It could be what's happening in this story. I am wrong and you are right times seven. And so I want us just to kind of be thinking about what Jacob does here. Because while it was hard physically, I think it was even hard emotionally and spiritually and relationally. Because human nature is human nature. And it's hard to admit when you're wrong. It just is. But I want us to think through as we transition to the next part of the text. When is the last time I looked somebody in the eye and said, I am wrong. You are right. Time seven. And I'm sorry. I screwed up. I made a mistake. When is the last time we humiliated ourselves uh, in that way? So Jacob shows up in humility. I want you to see Esau shows up in grace. I want you to notice what happens next. So Jacob sees his brother. He bows down to the ground and Jacob runs to him. And notice what the text says. It says he embraces his brother. He throws his arms around his neck and he kisses him. How is this possible? At this point in the story, remember, Jacob is down to the ground. Right? In this culture, a bow was a bow. Right? You didn't half bow. He was bowed to the ground, his face in the dirt. How is this even possible? Here's what I think happened, and it's just kind of my opinion. I think Esau got to him, ran to him, pulled him up, and essentially said, you are not subservient to me. You are forgiven. We are equals. And so Jacob shows up in humility Esau, and I wish we had Esau's backstory, we just don't. Esau shows up in grace. He's ready to demonstrate and show grace. I think it was the seven element of this that that caught my attention, but I'm reminded of a text from the New Testament. It says, Peter came to Jesus and asked, how many times shall I forgive my brother and sister who sinned against me? Up to seven times? And in this instance, Jacob bows seven times. So is that it then? And Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times, right? So God, like, is this a magic number? If someone comes like, I am sorry, 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 I am sorry. Oh, jackpot, right? We've hit the seven times, right? How long do I have to continue with this? And this is always the question when it comes to grace. And I'm going to kind of phrase it in a crass way, if you'll just allow me Uh, for a minute, but I want to make my point. The question behind grace is always, how many times am I supposed to put up with this nonsense? Right? I forgive, they bow down, or they don't bow down, I forgive, they do the same thing again, they bow down again, I forgive, they bow down, on and on. How many times, Jesus, seven? How many times am I supposed to put up with this grace nonsense? 
And Jesus says, not seven, but 77. And Jesus, knowing that we would very quickly develop a forgiveness calendar and we would start keeping track, Jesus goes on to tell a story. Right, Jesus, 77 times. So I think 77 squares, and I'm going to just start Xing them off. One by one. No, just listen to this story. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to sell, settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him. Oh, canceled the debt and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found his fellow servant who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, just like Jacob, be patient with me. I'll pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and he had the man thrown into debtor prison until he could pay the debt. While the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, I canceled all that debt because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay back all that he owed. I think this is where grace tends to go wrong. I think that when we read a story like this, we don't even think of ourselves as the servant who needs to be forgiven much. We often think of ourselves as the servant who needs to be forgiven little. That I'm basically a good person. I serve, I give, I snowblow my neighbor's driveway, right, in that last storm. I, I, I'm, I'm good. And we think of ourselves, and every once in a while there's a little white lie, or I say something I shouldn't say, or I lose my temper, but I'm the servant who needs to be forgiven little. And so what happens when we view ourselves that way is we tend to forgive little. What if we're actually the servant, not to spoil your Sunday lunch, but what if we're actually the servant who needs to be forgiven much? The outrage and the lunacy of this story is that there would be a servant who could be forgiven much that would forgive little. It's crazy. It's lunacy. It's insane. And it's correct. That is crazy. And I think the problem is that we don't even see ourselves that way. We have become so sickened by the decay of our culture, so fixated on the sins of other people, so consumed with, with outrage with the things that are happening in this world. We have, are, have become so concerned with looking out the windshield that we have forgotten to look into the mirror. And we've forgotten to see our sin. We've forgotten to see our need for a savior. We have lost our affection for and desire for and connection to grace. And so what it does, when, when this happens, when we're always looking out the windshield and we forget to look in the mirror, what it does is it creates a culture where moral outrage is really, really high. Can you believe you're not going to believe what I saw, what I heard, what I read. You're not going to believe. Moral outrage is high and grace is really, really low. Does it sound familiar? Outrage is high and grace is low. You're not going to learn grace from our culture, guys. 
You're, you're just not, you're not going to learn grace from our culture. You're going to learn grace from Jesus. Our, our culture is never going to teach you grace because what we learn from our culture is that uh, there are three ways that we respond to somebody's sin that are not helpful. First of all, the way we respond to sin in this culture, it's disproportional. Right? There are times where we just want to see someone's whole life destroyed in our culture because of their sin. So it's disproportional a lot of times. Sometimes it's inconsistent. It's often inconsistent, right? Because while it's true that we often will also turn, well, what I said was true, we also often turn a blind eye to sin. So one person in our culture is canceled for a sin, and another person receives an Academy Award that partakes in the same sin. It's inconsistent. The other thing uh, in our culture is it refuses to respond to repentance. And I think this is the most disturbing part of our culture when it comes to sin, is we generally refuse to respond with, to any sort of sense of sorrow and repentance. Sorry, canceled is canceled. And we're called to be different for a lot of reasons but we're called to be different because of the gospel. And what if we became a people that just responded to sin differently? We responded to it the way that Esau responded to his brother Jacob. And certainly we pray for justice, right? We pray deeply for justice and we hope that the authorities that God has ordained will take their role seriously and execute justice, fair and good justice. And I'm not just talking about the legal system, although that is a God-ordained entity that works in the justice field. It could be a school. It could be a workplace environment. It could even be a church. It is these organizations and these places where God has said, I have tasked you to execute justice. And we pray that they do it well. We pray for their wisdom. We pray for their understanding. We pray that they would execute uh, judgment in a graceful way, but we pray for justice. And if they don't enact justice the way that we think that they should, we have hope knowing that our God is a God of justice. And at the end of the day, he will make things, all things right. So we pray for justice. We pray for wholeness. That when we think about the sin of the person that we're, we're thinking about right now, we think that the reason they did that is they're not whole in some way. And when the Bible talks about wholeness, it's talking about the whole complete part of you, mind, body, spirit, soul, wholeness. So what if we prayed that for people? That man, this anger that's driving them, this greed that's driving them, this need for control that's driving them, what if we prayed that God would heal them of that and they would be made whole and they would respond to God's grace to try to make them whole? And what if we responded to repentance like Esau? Listen, a person humbling themselves and apologizing is not nothing. It's not to be ignored. It's not to be slighted. It is a big deal for someone to express sorrow. It might not mean that much in our culture, but it means a lot to us because of the gospel. We understand expressing sorrow, godly sorrow, leads to repentance, which leads us to our God. And so we understand repentance in our kind of way of thinking with the gospel, repentance is like a real big deal, right? Because we understand repentance is how we came back to the Father to begin with. And so we celebrate and we embrace repentance because repentance is part of the story that brings someone back to Jesus. And I love how the story says both men respond. It says they both weep. 
Jacob has responded with sorrow and he weeps over his sin. And Esau responds with grace and he weeps. And this is the way it should be. This is what I long for, to see more of this in our church and in our culture where someone is like, they approach it with humility and they, I was wrong, and they weep. And someone says, I forgive you, and they weep. It is a beautiful story of God's grace. Now, I do have to point out one little mistake that happens here with, with uh, Jacob. You know what, we couldn't let the whole sermon go by uh, without riding Jacob just a tiny bit. But there's one thing that happens here at the very end that sets up the next story that I want to kind of point out to because Jacob doesn't, for whatever reason, we're not told why, Jacob doesn't do what he promised his brother he would do. Right? Remember at the end of the story, he says to Esau, you go ahead to Seir. I've got these kids that can you know, walk so slow and it's going to take me forever. And I've got these cattle that need to be fed and all that. So you go to Seir and I will meet you there. He ends up at a totally different city and never really shows up for his brother. Uh, and I have no idea how it affected their relationship at all. We're, we're not told, but here's what I know. This early in peace coming to a relationship, this early in the grace process, it's a pretty careless thing to do. My son will tell you, we preach this to him all the time, but here's the life lesson. I, I sound like the old guy on stage just teaching life lessons. Be where you're supposed to be. I say to Sam all the time, we'll go to Target. He's like, hey, can I go look at books? Or can I go look at toys? Or can I go uh, look at snacks or whatever? And at 10 years old, we let him do that. But we, I always say to him before we go, Sam, look at me. Be where you're supposed to be. So if you say you're going to games, I don't want to find you in books. Right? If you say you're going to snacks, I don't want to find you in games. Be where you're supposed to be. And it's so simple, but it's true. Because what can happen in a relationship like this is you get moved off your position of grace. You were in a position of grace, and all of a sudden, now, I have no idea if this happened, but all of a sudden, now, Esau gets moved from a position of grace to a position of judgment. It's like, oh, same old Jacob. Making promises, not doing what he says he's going to do, misleading, doing whatever he wants. Same old Jacob. And we were here. We were in a position of grace. And now over a simple thing like, be where you're supposed to be, Jacob. Over a simple thing like that, uh, you, you, you open the door to have somebody moved off their position of grace. Um, and, and Jacob, he's in a position of humility. And now all of a sudden, if you play it out, he could be very easily moved into a defensive position. All of a sudden, it's like, hey, I've changed. I'm different. You can't accept the new me. And, and on and on it goes, and they both get moved off this really beautiful position that they were in. Here's what I want to say to you. I don't know that this applies directly, this element of the story, but here's what I want to do. Do everything you can to remain in a position of grace. Do everything you can to remain in grace. And certainly being where you're supposed to be, doing what you say in a relationship, keeping your promises, certainly that helps, but there are other things as well. Regular time in God's, regular time in God's word helps us remain in grace. Listening to music, Christ-centered music, helps us remain in grace. 
Being a regular church attendance helps us remain in grace. So do whatever you can to remain in a position of grace. Because once you kind of hit that spot, we're like, all right, I'm ready to forgive. I'm ready to show grace. I'm ready to show love. It is real easy to move off that. All of a sudden you're like, you know what? I'm not going to read my Bible this morning. I'm going to watch my favorite news program. Right? Not a good idea. Because all of a sudden you're watching like I was on Saturday morning. I was saying, I don't feel grace at all. I actually feel really angry right now, right? And all of a sudden you're moved off your position of grace. So we want to do everything we can as God does a, 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 a move of grace in our life. We want to do everything we can to stay in that spot. And there are things we can do that help with that. And there are things that we can do that move us away from it. And we want to find for us, it's kind of different for each person, I think, to a certain extent. We want to find what are the things that I can do that keep me in a position of grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're getting ready to receive uh, your supper, your Lord's Supper. And this is one of those things that I love that we do it here every week because this helps us remain in a position of grace. Whatever kind of angry confrontation or whatever thing caused us to kind of walk in judgment or anger or refuse to forgive this week, this is the time in our service where we can arrive back to a position of of grace, that we can remember your body poured out for us so we could be forgiven. We can remember your blood that came so that we could be forgiven. And right now, whatever happened this week, we know we can be forgiven of in this moment. And we also know that this is the moment that will help us move back to a position of grace with the people in our life. Because it is just crazy that we would be a servant that is forgiven much and that we would forgive little. That's crazy. And we know that's not how you intended it and how you wanted it to be, but it really requires us to stay in your grace. So as we get ready to receive communion, would you move us all a little bit closer to that grace square? Help us to stand there, remain there, enjoy being there, so that as we leave this place, that grace just naturally spills out to our server at whatever restaurant we eat at, it spills into our family as we're eating together. It spills into our coworkers tomorrow morning. It spills into our extended family as we're interacting with them that this grace invades our hearts and our minds and then eventually flows right through us to other people. May it be true. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. We're going to arrive back at that grace square by remembering the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. We've been singing about it all morning, and now it's our chance to just receive the bread representing his body and the juice representing his blood. And it's just an opportunity for us to say, man, whatever happened this week that was frustrating or angering or moved me off that gray square, whatever it was, I want to focus on this, and I want to come back to grace. And so I'm going to give you some time to just interact with your Savior, thank him for his grace, and then I'll come back up here and we'll receive communion all together. And we'll kind of take that step together to arrive back into a position of grace. Let's uh, receive together. His body given for you. His blood poured out. Jesus, as we, as we get ready to leave this place, may we be filled with your grace. May we be the servant who has been forgiven much, willing to forgive much. May we stay in this square as lots of stuff 
is going to challenge us and stretch us. Uh, may we remain in this square called grace. And may we be known to the people that we work with and our family and our friends. May we be known not just as believers, although we are as believers in your grace. May we be known as grace people. May we be known uh, like Esau was and, and like Jacob was, honestly, that when we're wrong, we humble ourselves. And when we're wronged, we show grace. May we be on both sides of that equation. Because of your grace, we're able to do it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, we're going to continue um, on next Sunday. And like I said uh, at, at the beginning of this service, that uh, Genesis 34, uh, you'll notice on, in your Bible, it's just kind of titled Dinah and the Shechemites. Uh, it is, uh, the backdrop of the story is, it's, it's tragic. Um, but what it teaches us is, is really important. And, and that's that um, we don't ever want to use faith and we don't want to use grace to execute our own desires. Um, that, that what we want to do is we want to use those things to serve others. And um, like I said, Don, it's like, a, you know, it's one of those when you're planning a series, you're like, ah, you know, maybe we'll skip it. But, but we decide not to. <laughs> you know, it's kind of a tough story to read. It's a tough story to hear. Uh, but it is a story that has a lot to teach us. And I think that's important as well. So um, I'm glad you guys were here. Let's uh, remain on the grace square. We stand up and let's sing together. God bless you. Living, he loved.